Welcome to Sunday Sermons from the Williamsburg Community Chapel, brought to you by the Chapel Podcast Network. Let's grab our Bibles. We're going to be in the book of Luke, chapter 4, verses 31 through 42. And I'll read verses 33 through 36 for us now, as we prepare to hear from Dale South, as he helps us continue in our Lenten series titled, Restored Lives. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. Last Sunday, we saw Jesus stand up in his hometown synagogue in Nazareth and read from Isaiah 61 about a future messianic king who would proclaim good news to the poor, proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, And to set free those who are oppressed, he would also proclaim the year of the Lord's favor in the context of a jubilee year when all debts would be forgiven, slaves would be freed, land would be returned. And when when Jesus completed, or we completed the the reading, then Jesus basically said, that passage in Isaiah 61, uh, I'm the guy Isaiah was talking about. Uh, The the words I just read are essentially my personal mission statement. Pastor Travis's big idea last week, very clear, Jesus restores lives. This morning, um, we're going to see that there was an unexpected outcome of Nazareth. We actually looked at it a little last week where Jesus declared his mission statement to these people to release and to restore, but Luke does not even mention that one single person in that synagogue was restored there that day. So the big idea this morning, building on last week's that Jesus restores lives, is that restoration is dependent on the authority and on the words and on the power of the one who restores So in our passage from Luke 4 this morning that Elizabeth just read, we see that Jesus immediately begins to live out his mission that he had said was his mission statement. He traveled from Nazareth, which was in the hill country, down to Capernaum, which would become a central hub of his ministry. Capernaum was a city on the northwest, a little town on the northwest of the Sea of Galilee, And here in Capernaum, once again, we find that Jesus is teaching on a Sabbath day in the synagogue. We aren't told what he was teaching, but Luke does tell us that the people were astonished at his teaching. This word astonished has the idea of being amazed, of being astounded. It's the idea of like being awestruck, where you're pretty much overwhelmed with, with what you're seeing here. And they were astonished that we should see because. Why were they astonished? They were astonished because his word possessed authority. Authority is a huge theme 
in Luke's gospel. It's mentioned 14 times. And authority here has the idea of, of someone who's in charge, whose, whose words are, are needing to be heeded, to be obeyed. Now, most of the rabbis at the time of Jesus would reference other rabbis it, it, it's their source of authority. We, we read in the Mishnah and the Midrash and the, the commentaries of Jewish teachings here for the Old Testament that there's a lot of quoting of Rabbi Hillel, of Rabbi Shema, of Rabbi Akiva. But Jesus didn't mention any other authorities. Jesus possessed an authority of his own. He didn't refer to other rabbis to bolster his teaching or authority. And in that synagogue... That day, while Jesus was teaching and the people were astounded because his teaching had authority, there was a man who was there as well who was under the control of an evil spirit, control of a demon. We're not going to dig deep, take a deep dive into demons today, but I do want to leave a link on the sermon follow-up to a very good illustration or a good, good introduction to demons from the Bible Project. That'll be a link. If you go to the download on the sermon uh, notes this morning from the website, you'll see that link. I re highly recommend it. But I, I do want to share a bit about a personal experience that some of the men's breakfast guys have already heard before I make some assertions about demonic spirits. That's when Celia and I had the privilege of serving in Paraguay uh, for nine years there. We led a Bible study on the porch of Pedro's house. Pedro was the first person in Paraguay to receive a heart transplant. And God used Pedro's illness to turn a very proud and hard living man into a follower of Jesus Christ as he came to saving faith. And Pedro wanted to have a Bible study then in his neighborhood. It was a very poor neighborhood. There was a, a neighbor woman there, close to 80 years old, who lived two doors down, two houses down, and her name was Coti. Coti uh, began to watch from her front porch, and at first she was very vocal, and she was quite antagonistic about our Bible study, and she would talk bad about it to neighbors. But as the weeks went by, uh, she started to come closer, and then... She was on the porch with us. And then within a matter of months, Coti had moved to following Jesus Christ herself as he brought her to faith. She embraced God's word in the gospel. She moved from being an antagonist to being an evangelist. And one day Coti approached me at the study and she said that her 20-something grandson, Francisco, had a demon said Francisco had experienced convulsions and other manifestations of the demonic. And one night he actually went out naked into the streets and, and rushing traffic and almost got run over. Coti asked me, he said, would you go missionary to visit Francisco and pray for the demon to come out of him? I invited another mature believer to go with me. We prayed and we fasted and we went to Francisco's house. And when we walked through the gate to the property, we had to wind through a labyrinth of trees and houses as there was kind of a courtyard back in between this complex. So we followed the sound 
of people who were further back. And finally, we found a group that was there who had been playing volleyball. And Francisco was one of them. However, before we could see anyone, as we entered the property, before anyone knew we were there, coinciding with the moment that we set foot onto the property, Francisco had gone into convulsions and had fallen to the ground. I walked over to the contorted young man and I rebuked the evil spirit in the name of Jesus, trembling as I did, telling it to come out of him. Well, the convulsions stopped. Francisco calmed down. It was as if he had fallen asleep and had a hard time waking up. And when he did open his eyes and was seemingly relieved from the demon's power, I shared the gospel with Francisco and with his family, but he did not express faith in Jesus. I prayed for the family once again and left. Weeks later, I learned that the demonic manifestations did return, but a group of Pentecostals came and they prayed over Francisco and they shared the gospel with him. And that time he did profess faith in Jesus. He began attending worship services. He began going to Bible studies. He was dressed in his right mind. And as far as I know, he's been freed from the evil ever since. And I sort of jokingly referred to, well, on that event, Pentecostals won, this Baptist, zero. (laughs) Demons are spirit beings. And they try to keep people from trusting in God. I believe they know their destiny is eternal damnation and they want to take people with them. They take advantage of opportunities to discourage and to harm people. But demons are absolutely no match for the power of the Holy Spirit. In our recent chapel-wide Bible study where we looked at Colossians, we see in Colossians 2.15 that he, God, disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus. And demons are destined for destruction. So with those basics in mind, let's get back to Jesus at Capernaum. And we see this man who was captive to a demon. We see Jesus set him free. And the, the scripture tells us that Jesus rebuked the demon, saying, be silent and come out of him. That word literally means be muzzled. Jesus has the authority to rebuke and to speak harshly to evil with his words. And his spirit-empowered words bring restoration and freedom. The people who saw how Jesus had set the captive man free from the demonic spirit were all amazed. This is a different word than astounded. This word is the word that we we find it comes to to be not just astonished, but it describes the experience of someone who has seen a manifestation of God, a theophany. And the the people are astounded and they are amazed. They, they, They aren't sure what to do with Jesus. He's more than a warrior king messiah. He's more than a great teacher Because with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. Jesus not only had the authority to command demonic spirits, he has the power to make them obey. 
Power is different from authority. The Greek word for power is the same root word we use for dynamite, dunamis. It's this powerful potential. And it is possible to have authority without having the power to impose that authority. I'm not saying anything new to parents. You could be the greatest authority in the world about cancer or war or mental illness or financial debt, and yet you don't have the power to prevent it in your own life or in the lives of those you love. Jesus had and has both authority and power. And during his earthly ministry, Luke presents Jesus as fully God, fully man, as being empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. Luke tells us in the earlier chapters, the Holy Spirit empowered Jesus' conception. As he said to Mary, the angel says to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will over, over, uh, uh, take you or overcome you, come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy. He will be called the Son of God. And then we see the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus in the visible form of a dove at his baptism when a voice from heaven comes out and says, this is my beloved son. The Spirit then led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil where the devil was questioning his identity as the son of God. And Jesus continued to speak the words of God with his authority and the power of the Holy Spirit. And then when Jesus comes out of the wilderness, temptation victorious in verse 14 of chapter four, we read that he, was, he returned to Galilee in the power of the spirit. And he stands up in that synagogue in Nazareth in his hometown. What are the first words that he says from Isaiah? The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach and to set free and to give sight and to heal. It was the Holy Spirit who empowered and imposed Jesus' authority over demons and disease. And it's that same Holy Spirit that dwells in every born-again follower of Jesus, the Messiah. The same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, Paul tells us, dwells in you and in me. And if you are here this morning and you have not receive the Holy Spirit. You don't know that the Holy Spirit is active and working in your life. I hope you will come forward at the end of the service and pray with some folks and talk to them to make sure that the Spirit is indeed living in you because that's the power you need for restoration. So when Jesus left the synagogue, he went to the home of Simon Peter. Simon Peter's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever. Jesus approached the woman, and what does he do again? He rebukes, there's that word again, he rebukes the fever. Jesus rebuked the demonic spirit with his words, and the spirit left the man. Jesus rebuked the fever from the woman with his words, and the fever left the woman. This word spread about Jesus. People with sicknesses of all kinds were coming to Peter's house before sunset in hopes that Jesus would also heal and set them free. And it appears that Jesus did quite a bit more rebuking as he healed every sickness and he released everyone who came to him, those who were captive to demonic evil spirits, and he would not allow the spirits to speak as he muzzled them and told them to be quiet. 
One thing here I want to make sure we notice, though, did you notice that Luke did not name any of the people who were healed or delivered from the demons? In fact, there are only three people that Jesus heals or does an exorcism for in all the New Testament who, who have their names mentioned. We have a man with a demon, Peter's mother-in-law, other unnamed people with diseases and demons. Jesus cared, it seems, about each one of these persons individually, unnamed individuals. And we know that Jesus has power and Jesus could have simply had a mass healing and a mass exorcism and said, you know, I had a long day. I started off this morning in the synagogue. I, you know, I, uh, be healed, all of you. Demons, get out of everybody. Uh, I'm going home now. But Jesus took the time. And scripture tells us in verse 40 that Jesus laid his hands on every one of those unnamed people and he healed their sicknesses and he cast out the demons. Now, although he cared about them as individuals, their individual restoration was not the point. In a sermon on marriage a few weeks back, Trav said marriage is not the point, but it points to Jesus and his relationship with the church. And in the same way today, our individual restorations are not the point, but they point to Jesus as the one who is bringing God's new creation, who's bringing God's kingdom into being. See, Jesus is at the center of that new creation. Just like in our Colossians study, in our chapel-wide study, we see that Jesus was at the center of the original creation. Paul tells us that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, and by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the creator and the recreator, the restorer. So how did that original creation come about according to Genesis 1? Well, it came about by the authority of God. It came about by the words of God, by the power of God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The triune God spoke and creation came into being. Unfortunately, by Genesis chapter 3, we see that human beings started to question his authority. We see that they distrusted his words. We see that they relied on their own power. And at the root of all this was a demonic evil force. As a result, all of creation was corrupted, left in need of restoration and recreation that Jesus came into. See, there was no poverty. There were no poor people to be set free and to have good news. There was no sickness. There was no shame. There was no death before humans rebelled against God and his authority before they distrusted his words, before they tried to do things and take power upon, upon themselves. There, there, there was no demonic oppression or captivity before human rebellion. There was no addiction. There was no suicide. 
Just as Jesus was the living word that spoke creation into existence, he now speaks with authority and with power to restore what sin corrupted in creation. Jesus restores lives. In our dominant culture here in America today, we see a very different view of the world and how restoration can or should occur. In 1999, Columbia University professor Andrew Del Banco wrote a book that I found helpful called The Real American Dream, a meditation on hope. And in that book, he reflects on what Americans have hoped in over the centuries. You know, there's a connection between what we hope in and the authority that we trust. I want to make that connect that dot here because what you're hoping in is really what you're giving authority to. And Del Banco writes, in the first phase of our civilization in America, hope was chiefly expressed through a Christian story that gave meaning to suffering and pleasure alike and promised deliverance from death. For nearly the first 200 years, American culture collectively placed their hope in God as the authority. But then scientific and rational thought through the Enlightenment came to overtake biblical revelation as sources of public truth. Scripture was relegated to the world of opinions and beliefs. God was no longer necessary to explain things. So confidence in a personal God who supernaturally intervenes in the daily lives of human beings was diminished. And as a consequence, America as a whole transferred their hope from God to the nation. This is Del Banco's premise. And Del Banco describes that shift as a national ideal lesser than God, but larger and more enduring than any individual person. But that dominant culture largely accepted that source of authority as the nation, as the source of authority through the 1950s. But after the Vietnam War conflict, after Watergate, after a host of other national blemishes, Many people lost hope in the nation as their authority. Del Banco lamented back in 1999, today hope has narrowed to the vanishing point of the self alone. Though we see authority in the, the hope of America has gone from, the, from God to the nation, and now it's down to the individual. I believe what Del Banco described in 1999 has continued to play out over the last 24 years as the individual today is exalted as the primary source of authority. After the scientific and rational thought convinced many people that God was not needed, philosophers like Jean-Jacques Rousseau of the Romantic era in the 1700s and then Frederick Nietzsche in the late 1800s, they proposed that with religion out of the way, there was no need now for anyone to, to allow anything to repress or control them. Individuals should not allow government or education or institutions or anyone to keep them from being their deepest authentic selves. 
intellectually, sexually, spiritually, or any other way. What we would say is different from a biblical worldview is that original, sincere, authentic self is a flawed, sinful self in great need of restoration. But the idea was don't allow anything to repress you from acting on your own appetites and desires. These men argued that words, words of Christians in particular, were were tools of the powerful, the establishment of the empire to, to keep the weak people under their control. Religion and the state and higher education were all accused of using their words to oppress people and maintain power over individuals. You know, and admittedly, there, there was some truth to that, but not the whole truth. And Nietzsche then sees the will to power as the only way to get through the problem because God no longer is even part of the picture. So American culture today is in this power struggle History is increasingly being studied, not as just a record of past events, but as a a study of how authority and how words and how power have been used to disadvantage one group over another. It's the record of the oppressors and the oppressed. And in that cultural way of understanding the world, Restoration is only achieved when individuals resist all the power structures that use authority and use words to keep them from being their authentic selves. In that framework, individuals must create their own identities. They must determine their own gender and sexuality. They must follow their hearts to be true to themselves. It's a battle for identity, just like Satan with Jesus in the wilderness. If you really are the son of God, if you really are, then do this in your own power. This burden to create one's own self and identity is a weight we were not created by God to bear. It shouldn't surprise us that mental illness, depression, addiction, And suicide are at the levels that they are because we were never meant to create ourselves, never meant to be our own authorities, never meant to have to decide whose words are trying to oppress us and whose words are trying to free us, never never meant to battle evil demonic forces in our own strength. But if we as a church are Jesus' family, On Jesus' mission, we need to recognize his authority. We need to trust and use his words. And we need to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit rather than our own best efforts and schemes. We need to realize that we are products of this greater, larger culture around us. And then it can affect us, it can infect us. For one example, I know a lot of people in married life have some struggles. I don't think there's a married couple that's been married for long that hasn't had some sort of conflict of wills. If you want a restored marriage, 
but you're making yourself the authority of how things have to change. And you're listening to the words of the culture that, that tell you you should not stay in a marriage that doesn't make you happy instead of the words of God. And if you're giving it your all, or maybe more likely, you're just giving it a half-hearted effort that hedges your bets, then don't really expect a restored relationship. Our marriages need to be recognizing the authority of God and the words of God and the power of the Holy Spirit if there will be a restoration. See, the authority of the culture will be the individual. Their words will not align with God's words. Their power will offer opportunities through money, through political might, or brute force. Our mission as church, Jesus' family on Jesus' mission, is not to defeat these people, but is to show them that we have a better authority. We have better true words. We have Holy Spirit power to change lives. Lives restored by Jesus will be the most credible witness to a world that is watching. It'll be the best apologetic that we have as we surrender, take the way of the cross. Say, God, you are the authority. You are the king. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. See, we're not going to get that message from the world. You will not find words that lead to restoration as you keep your eyes fixed on CNN or Fox or any news outlet that profits from ratings by getting people riled up and angry. But you may find restoration if you use his words and if you rely on the Holy Spirit's power. So again, the big idea, restoration is dependent on the authority, on the words, and on the power of the one who restores. Will you Welcome Jesus to restore and to recreate your life today. Will you say, Jesus, please rebuke anything in my life that keeps me from your authority, your words, your power, and bring restoration? We're going to have prayer after the service, some folks up here, and I really invite you to come. There's also going to be elder prayer. It's going to be a prayer for those who are having sickness or physical healings. I invite you to come if you need healing. And if any of you are, are battling thoughts in your head of self-harm, of worthlessness, come, receive prayer, be freed from the demonic evil that would want to do you harm this morning. Father, may your kingdom come and your will be done in our lives and on this earth as it is in heaven. Through Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. Here at the Williamsburg Community Chapel, we are all about making disciples of Jesus Christ. So wherever you are on your spiritual journey, we are excited to help you connect to Christ and his community. Have a blessed day.